from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose for some reason to follow the Baha'i way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Carol Williams, a Baha'i who grew up in Buford, South Carolina. Before she became a Baha'i, she owned her own business and did a stint as a private investigator. She is currently the administrator for the nonprofit organization One Human Family, as well as working for a nonprofit called the Community Reinvestment Association. I started the interview by asking Carol where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in Buford, South Carolina. And interestingly enough, I lived on the island. There was a series of islands that Beaufort's made up of, and I lived on Ladies Island. And our school was all black, and my mom and dad wanted me to have an opportunity to go to the school in town, which was a little more, they thought it was better. It was more diverse. It was, quote-unquote, the white school. And so halfway through my junior high school, they pulled me out and sent me to school in town. And it was me and another young man named Thomas Adams that were going to school in town illegally. Mm. Thomas got busted, so he turned me in. And so then we both had to go to school on the island. So now we're at the black school. And the, the reason that I bring it up is I had an opportunity to really get to know both systems that were going on. Mm-hmm. It's the whole race issue was always a question for me growing up, but I was always in the middle of it. Everything around me was black or African-American, but my mom was Catholic, and we went to an all-white Catholic church. We were the only black family there. Mm. And then I had an opportunity to go to both schools. So growing up was, was really interesting. I saw a lot of the negativity of um, what we were experiencing as black people um, on the islands, but I also saw how the other half lived and what was going on. So I think um, it really prepared me for you know, taking on the, the race fight later in life. So this white school, you were only there for less than a year? I was there for a year and some change. I did my whole seventh grade, actually two years. I did my whole seventh grade and eighth grade year there, and I was getting ready to go to the ninth grade when I got busted and had to go to school on the island. In ninth grade, I would have gone to the high school in town, but the junior high school on the island was seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. Mm. So I had to do my ninth grade year at the, high, at the junior high school on the island, mm-hmm. which was the best year of my junior high school life. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> I, really felt that, I really felt at home. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was more what I was used to. It was sure. all my peers. It was everybody that I lived around. Mm-hmm. The cheerleaders actually, you know, danced, and they had soul, and they had rhythm. Yeah. We had a, a marching band that was hot, you know, by my standards. Mm-hmm. I liked being around people that were like me. Right. And what was your choice during those that 7th and 8th grade when you were at the school on the mainland? Well, I really didn't understand at the time why my mom and dad wanted me to go to school in town. Mm-hmm. 
I, I just I just didn't understand it. And I felt, you know, like I was being punished mm. by being taken away and separated from everybody else to go to school in town. I mean, later in life, I understood that my mom, I mean, even the way that we speak, just the whole cultural experience, she wanted me to be more exposed. She wanted me to have access to the, the better books, the better classes, quote-unquote better teachers, which I don't really believe that argument now, and she doesn't either, I believe. But she, every, they felt that the school in town was better mm-hmm. and that I would have more advantages if I went to that school. And so they were trying to give me what they thought was the best. Now, how many black kids were in the school you were going to on the mainland? There were enough. I mean, it wasn't as if I was the only black student there, but we were definitely a minority, whereas the school on the island, you know, there were very few white students there. Mm-hmm. And what was your experience there socially? At the school in town? Mm-hmm. I fit in. I was, you know, not one of the quote-unquote popular kids, but I've always been very even-tempered, even socially. You know, I'm have always been more of the negotiator for people. So I've, I've always kind of made space with the cool kids and with the nerdy kids because I've always been, quote-unquote, smart. You know, in the band, when I was growing up, being in the band was cool, even though, you know, you were still a band nerd. It was like, you're the coolest of the nerds. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I was, you know, because my whole family is very musical, I mean, they put instruments in our hand when we were in first grade, whereas mm-hmm. everyone else didn't get an instrument until they were in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in my family, it wasn't, are you going to play an instrument? It's what instrument are you going to play? So because of the band and the music, you know, I just already had a ready-made crowd where I didn't have to try so hard to fit in. Now, at church, it was a different story because that was just totally, I mean, like, I'm still mad at my mom for that church experience. But anyway, we laugh about it today. Yeah. Like, why did you do that to us? <laughs> well, what was it about the church experience? We were the only black family in our church All right. up until I got in junior high school. And another black family that was in the military moved to our area, the Harveys. And like, my mom's still friends with Miss Harvey today. And so then it was us and the Harveys. So we were the only black family that everybody knew us. We could do you know, no wrong. It's like, it seemed like we were just the, the center. If anything went wrong, mm-hmm. you know, they looked at us first. If anything went right, it never came our way. And it's just I, I hated feeling like I was the spectacle all the time. Right. And, did and you... they didn't sing. And I'm like, what's, what, what's oh, that? Yeah. I was in a gospel choir at school, right. but everything that I saw in church was so... They do the Gregorian chant thing, don't they, in church? Yes, yeah. and that's about it. Yeah. Did your father go to church? My dad was Baptist, mm-hmm. and he left his church to because my mom wanted to go to the Catholic church. Oh, right. So he actually right. left his church and started going to church with my mom. He okay. um, had started a choir at the Catholic church at one point. It didn't last very long. You know, I have a hard time putting the events together because I was really young sure. when my parents divorced. Okay. Um, and that was a nasty situation unto itself. And actually, mm-hmm. I was in sixth grade, I think. Mm. So I don't remember much of him at Mm. the church. And of course, when they separated, he went back to his church. I see. And what was the instrument you played in band? I played the flute. My older sister played the saxophone. Mm. My second older sister played the clarinet. And I chose the flute, which meant when I was going through school, I had access to a flute, a clarinet, and a sax. And the fingering is pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. So in dad's band, I would play the saxophone. I'd always play around with the clarinet, but my main instrument was the flute. Mm-hmm. Do you still play so, any? Do you play any of those today? I still have a flute. All right. 
and I play it not nearly as much as I should, <laughs> but I know I need to pick it back up. And uh, I mean, because I was really good, I was always first chair. Every once in a while, somebody would challenge me, and I'd lose my chair just long enough until I could challenge them back again. So we had to wait a week <laughs> to challenge them back, but I met. I never was very far away from my first year. <laughs> That's great. That's terrific. So what was high school like? High school was good. The schools on the island and the schools in town, they all came together to go to high school. You know, that was a little challenge. There were quite a bit more cliques, I would say, in the, in the high school. And there was always the rumble between town and the island. For me and, and Thomas, because we have friends from both schools, and so we were always on on you know on both sides or rather I should say in the middle of a lot of everything that was going on but high school was high school was good I did well I graduated in the top 10 um, I was a drum major of the band had an absolute ball <laughs> I, I enjoyed my high school year that's great that's great so what did you do after high school after high school most of my friends went to South Carolina State College and I went to the University of South Carolina mm-hmm. and I went there because my high school guidance counselor, God rest his soul, he told me that because I was so good in math, and my dad was a math teacher, he taught calculus. Oh, that's another thing I forgot to mention about growing up. My neighborhood, every single adult in my immediate neighborhood had something to do with the school system. My mom was a librarian. My dad was a math teacher. My next-door neighbors was a librarian, the principal. One of them was on the school board. There was another guidance counselor. So every school I went to, somebody in my neighborhood was an administrator or a teacher at that school. So we really couldn't win. If we got in trouble at school, we got in trouble at home, too. And they felt like they could give us a spank in that school because they knew my mama. Everybody was raising you. You know, back in that day, everybody was your parent. So we could not escape you know, the whole school scene because of the neighborhood that we grew up in. In elementary school, junior high school, high school, every single school, there was someone in my immediate neighborhood that worked there. That's funny. <laughs> That's great. It's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. I say it's great, and you're like, what do you mean it's great? It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, we never had to worry about missing the bus because we always had a ride home. Yeah, you probably think it's a good thing now, right? Um, actually, I think it was great. I think one of the one of the reasons why you know we just excelled more in school is because we knew. I mean, your teachers were there from the time you were born until the time you went off to college. Mm. Everybody knew everybody. The teachers just stayed. And society nowadays is so transient that teachers don't have an opportunity to really get invested in their students like they used to. Mm. So they see them for a year and then they're gone. Yeah. You know, and the teachers are here for a couple years and then they're gone. It's not like their school, it's not their neighborhood, it's not their community except for a short time. So looking back on it, I wish that my kids could grow up in that type of situation. I mean, there were a lot of things that were negative, but there was so much love and support around us constantly from all sides. It it was really great. Mm. So what did you study in college? I have a degree in management. Mm-hmm. And what I was getting ready to say about my high school guidance counselor, I love math. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, you're so good at math, you should be an accountant. And so I'm the type of person where I'm, I want to go and get exactly what it is that I need to prepare myself for what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So I didn't take a bunch of electives or anything in college. I went, I said, okay, what do I need to get a degree in accounting? I need to take this, this, that, that. And I just I put myself on an accelerated program my last year in high school. I had an opportunity to graduate early, but I decided to 
stay in high school, and at that time they had a program where you could actually attend college at the same time that you were going to high school. So for half the day, I'd be in college because we had a, a campus of the University of South Carolina in Beaufort. So I started there. I took all my English and math during my senior year of high school, and then I would go and teach band at the elementary school during my in-between time, and in the afternoon I would go to high school. And so now, I think now they have like AP courses where you can actually take it in high school, and then at the end you take a test. If you pass it, you get college credit. Mm -hmm. Well, back then you actually enrolled in college. So Mm -hmm. I was doing both at the same time. And then when I graduated, I took some summer classes, so I had all of my standard stuff out of the way by the time I actually started college. So I just started on my classes, and I'm like, I'm going to graduate, I'm going to get a job, I'm going to get counted, everything's going to be great. (laughs) When I got into my core classes for accounting, I realized, first of all, accounting has nothing to do with math. Oh, really? No, it's all, you know, principles and, you know, how you, where you put things. If you can add and subtract, you know, divide, multiply, Everything else is knowing how and where things apply and where you need to put it. It's not, you know, about the nuts and bolts of math. Oh. And by the time I realized that, I was so far into my program and so frustrated. You know, people would come into our classrooms and they would say, you know, practicing accountants. So we'd have an opportunity to talk to them about, you know, how things are really done. And they'd look at our textbooks and say, well, why are you learning it that way? We don't do it that way anymore. And that's the wrong answer for me. I don't want to waste my time learning anything. When I was in first grade, I told my teacher, you know, you know what? I'm not coming back because I've had enough education. My mom said, I said, edumacation is what I told her. <laughs> I'm not uh, coming funny. back. I had enough edumacation. <laughs> Guess your mother thought otherwise. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, you know, that was really frustrating. And I yeah. finally got to the point where I just said, this, this is really not for me. Mm-hmm. And so I went and talked to my counselors in college. They were telling me that in order to go and get my degree to be able to teach math, I basically almost had to start over except for that first year that oh. I had done. That was the wrong answer. Right. And so I basically said, what am I good at? What do I like to do? And what am I closest to? Mm-hmm. And so you can always get a business degree. You know, we have a great business program, and, you know, you'd only have an extra semester added on. And I was like, sign a sister up. I'm going to do that. <laughs> so I, I got my degree and started and started mm. working. And I had been working in a computer center while I was at college. So I was helping students with their papers, making them look pretty, making them look professional. And I was pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. Once I got out, I actually started doing that for myself. I actually opened my own business, utilized my degree a little bit. So I was doing layout and design. And I ran into a guy that got me into being a private investigator. Oh, really? So I was doing layout and design, and I was a private investigator also. So I did that for several years. Tell me about Um, being a private investigator. Oh, it was awesome. It was so much fun. I did corporate jobs where you would go and get a job somewhere where the corporations felt that they had a problem. Like, say, Walmart Corporation feels like they have a problem in store number 5723. Mm-hmm. And so they hire our company and say, could you please send an investigator to this store to find out what our real issues are? And so they'd say, well, the person that most typically will get hired at that store is, you know, an African-American female between this age and that age with this kind of background. And so if I fit that bill and they would create a background for me, I would go and apply for a job. And if I got the job, then I got the assignment. Mm. And so basically you're working in an environment where you're investigating 
everybody that's working with you. Oh, my god! And the downside of that is the people that you want to make friends with are not really the people that you need to be hanging out with. Mm-hmm. And the people that you normally wouldn't hang out with are the ones that you probably really need to be talking to. Right. And basically, you would you you work and you try to uncover you know what the issues are in the store, and you're constantly reporting back to the corporation what the situation is in that particular store. Yeah. So, how did you like to work? I loved it. I actually I, I love doing repetitive tasks where I can think about the other aspects of my life that are more important. Mm-hmm. When I was in high school, I worked at Burger King. I thought it was great. I couldn't understand why everybody around me was so upset about having to work at Burger King. You know, I realized later it's because they felt like they had to be there. Mm. I knew I didn't have to be there. Right. So I had fun when yeah. I was there. Right. Working at some of these companies as a private investigator, I mean, the corporation is paying you. Mm-hmm. The investigating company is paying you. Mm-hmm. And you're getting a paycheck because they think you're a regular employee. And as a single person just out of college Mm -hmm. that is the best (laughs) that is the absolute best you know but after a few years when you worked at so many different places for me it became increasingly difficult to keep my background straight to Mm -hmm. remember you know whether I was in school or out of school I would run into people that maybe I had worked with in particular stores and they say oh you know did you graduate yet (laughs) and I'm thinking oh heck oh can I say heck I'm sorry (laughs) <laughs> you know, but then you catch yourself and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, when I was there, I was you know, supposed to be in school and blah, blah, blah. And I just always had a hard time really keeping lives straight. Yeah, so it I, became increasingly difficult for me. I started doing more jobs out of town and mm, out of state, which got to be very, very lonely. Yeah. Because you'd actually have to go and set up residency in another state. So the great thing is from the time you got in your car and left, you you were on the clock, and so you were getting paid. Mm-hmm. But it, it just became very lonely, and you don't make a lot of friends, of course, doing that business. Right. So you had your own business. Tell me about that. It was called Montoya Marketing, mm-hmm. and basically I was taking businesses that were just starting and helping them create their whole identity and all of the materials that came with creating that identity. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was just outfitting them from start to finish. You know, at that time, you didn't have all of the quick-stop shops to get business cards and letterhead and all these things done, mm-hmm. and, and more, somebody to design it for you. A lot of people were not that adept on the computer. You know, they were scared of them, frankly. So if you knew how to do that stuff, you, you could always find work. And then I also was doing layout for a couple newspapers that were in Columbia, South Carolina. And it, it, was, it was really good. I actually had some clients that were in Germany because some of my Saras and my sorority sisters had moved to, to Germany, and so I was doing work for them and their organizations. So I had clients everywhere. Mm. Um, it was a good business. It Wh- really was. What happened to it? Well, marriage happened to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, I, uh, now what, at what point in your life, Kara, did you run into the Baha'i faith, and how did that happen? I was doing some layout work for Big Brothers Big Sisters, and they actually received a grant to hire somebody in-house to do that work for them. And I was not going to apply for it because I figured they would just want somebody that maybe had a degree in that, or I didn't know. And the executive director wanted to hire me, but she didn't think that I would accept the job because I had my own business, so why would I want to work for them full time? Mm -hmm. We finally talked about it. And I told her that I was interested, so she, she just hired me on the spot. 
you know, for me it was great because I was doing what I was already doing for them, but now I got a paycheck whether they had a lot of work for me or not. What about the business that you did have? Did you keep that running in this at the same time? I still maintain my other clients. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aggressively promoting it or marketing it like I used to, mm-hmm. but I still was maintaining all the clients that I already had. Whenever mm-hmm. they um, needed stuff, I was still doing work for them and still doing the work for the newspapers. Mm-hmm. But at Big Brothers Big Sisters, you know they say that you should only work someplace long enough for them to find out what you're really good at and then leave right before they make you do it. <laughs> well, I didn't leave quick enough. <laughs> so I ended up going from their layout and design person to handling all of the finances of the organization. I was mm. their um, administrative services director. Mm. So anything that had anything to do with money coming through the organization, I was handling payroll, accounts receivable, payable, everything. Mm. And then when our, we got a grant to do a program with our older kids, who we typically have trouble getting people to volunteer to be their big brother or big sister because everyone wants a cute, cuddly little person. <laughs> so we got a grant to do this teen companion program. It was an arts program where we were going to take the kids and have artists work with them. We want to go through their, what's called a Dream Brothers Club, go through their dreams, their goals, their desires. What do you want to do with your life? And we were taking what they were saying and what they were writing in their journals to make it into a musical production that mm. then they were going to present to the public at large. We had them in this arts program. So we had to hire somebody to pull this music together and create the music. And we hired a gentleman by the name of Eric Dozier. And I remember when he first came in for his interview, myself, the executive director, and one other person that worked there were doing the interviews. And right before he came into the office, our executive director says, you know, well, the next person that we're going to interview, his name is Eric Dozier. He's a Baha'i. And they believe in intentional race mixing. That was all she said. Oh, my gosh. And so we were like, oh, okay. (laughs) He comes in. We interview him. He's great. You know, his energy is awesome. And so we hire him Mm -hmm. to work with our our kids. And the first day he comes into the office, and mind you, I'm I'm at a, as soon as I left home, I left the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Um, I joined a Baptist church that I absolutely was enamored with, just in love with this church. Everything I know about a personal relationship with God, I learned at this church. Mm. Um, it was my family. When I was there, I felt at home. When I wasn't there, I wanted to be there. Um, I was the president of my church choir. It was a choir that traveled with the pastor all the time. Everyone that worked at Big Brothers Big Sisters also was very spiritual-minded, spiritual mm. in nature, and it was, a, it was something that we kind of groomed in our office. Of the seven people that work there, six of us were within two years of age of each other, mm. and that's and except for the executive director. So we were all kind of going through the same life experiences at the same time, and it just was an amazing, amazing place to work. Um, no, Kara, I have a question for mm-hmm. you. I'm sort of surprised that the fact that somehow your childhood spiritual experience didn't turn, turn you off to a spiritual experience at all. Instead, it seemed to, you still had some craving inside of you looking for that experience that you couldn't find growing up as a kid. Well, I always just felt that there was something, some bigger piece that was missing. You know, I think a lot of people have those questions about, you know, well, if God loves everybody, then, you know, why, you know, these people think that they're right, and why do those people think that they're right? And in the Catholic Church, you just do not get answers. 
Mm-hmm. You you just don't. You know, if they if they, if they can't find the answer in the in the doctrine that they created, of course, it's my opinion, then it's a sin for you to ask that question. And I've never my spirit was never settled on that. And thank goodness at the at the school where I was, there was a, a gospel choir. And so I participated in the gospel choir at school, which meant mm-hmm. I was in church a lot sure. with the choir. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that kind of got me away from that. When I went to college, the culture of the people that I was hanging around in college, we all went to church. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just a given. That's, I see. You just do that. And, and I loved being there. Mm-hmm. I, I, I loved being there. I loved the way that they would teach. I love the way that you would find out about God and what his plans are for you and how he's working in your life. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it just was always there for me. I mean, yeah. and there were a lot of things, negative things that happened throughout our growing up. I mean, my parents' divorce was very nasty. And my sisters, I have two older sisters. One of them is four years older than me, and the other one's six years older than me. And so they were never my peers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they went through things together a lot, and so it was like the two of them, and then it was me. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of went through life, I felt, you know, pretty much by myself. I remember people would, would tease me in school because I would just think so much, and I was always watching people in assessing situations. And there came a point, I think when I was in, in uh, junior high school, and uh, my friends had decided that they weren't going to sit across from me because they didn't like the way that I stared at them. They were like, oh, it's like you can see through us. We don't like the way you look at us. You're always staring off. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was, you know, the big joke on me yeah. when I was in school. Yeah. You know, I think that God, you know, definitely was had a plan for me. And so yeah. he kind of protected my spirit in that way. Yeah, yeah. So you were at this church that you really loved. Yes. And so the first day that Eric comes into the office, he goes into his new office, puts a sign up on the door that says, I'm a Baha'i, ask me about it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Lord, <laughs> he is going straight to hell. Mm-hmm. And he's such a nice guy. Yeah. So I thought, well, I can probably help him. You know, I, I can probably help him. So I definitely wasn't going to ask him about the Baha'i faith, but I would certainly let him know who God was and how he worked, you know, whatever those Baha'i people were thinking. Right. And so we just, we developed a camaraderie and really, I mean, because he was, fell right in with everyone else in the office with the whole age group and, you know, what we were going through at that point. Because we were working together with the music, he and I became more buddies than, say, the rest of the people in the office. And there came a point where he was working with a choir at Lewis Gregory, which I didn't know what that was at the time. But he asked me, he's like, you know, well, you're really good, you know, with uh, the music and everything. Can you come and help me at Lewis Gregory because I'm trying to get this choir together? And so the first question I asked him, which was really the only question that I had asked him up to that point about the high faith, was, y'all believe in Jesus, don't you? And he was like, yeah, man, come on. I said, okay, well, as long as they believe in Jesus, I can at least go and help them start this choir because, you know, we got something that we have in common, and so, you know, maybe he only have one foot in hell for. <laughs> for our listeners' sake, can you explain what Lewis Gregory is? The Lewis Gregory Baha'i Institute, there's four, I think, Baha'i Institutes in the United States, mm-hmm. and there are schools of, of learning for the Baha'is where we can go and take classes on different aspects of the faith or just different aspects of life that have a faith basis to them. So they're like places where we can go to educate ourselves about 
from the Baha'i faith and how we can then turn around and be of service to humanity. Mm-hmm. So they're schools. They're actually schools of learning for the Baha'is. Mm-hmm. And Lewis Gregory is one of them. Lewis Gregory, yes. Okay. It, it's the one in the South. It's in Hemingway, South Carolina. Okay. It's right. an, an amazing place. Um, at that time, the caretakers, typically they would have a couple that would live on site and be responsible for the administration of the, the property and the, and the classes and just all the affairs of the school. But at that time, it was Charleston, Sandra Bullock. Um, and for anyone that knows them, it's just an amazingly loving couple, very low-key couple, you know, low energy all the time. They have two boys that are as hyper as they come and will keep you in stitches. We're still amazed at how they got two such lively boys. <laughs> But whenever I would go to Lewis Gregory, I would stay with them at their home. Mm. And, and they basically were just loving me into the faith. You know, mm. people that are that warm and that embracing, you have to wonder what is it that they're holding on to that makes them able to give in that way. Mm. So when I would go to Lewis Gregory with Eric, I would stay with them. Also, there was a gentleman by the name of Todd Ewing that lived in Columbia, and at one point, Eric said, you know, hey, well, I got this friend named Todd, and he's setting this office up, and he's trying to set up his office, and he needs some help. And you're really good organizationally, so maybe you can help him. So I met Todd, and I actually started working for him. And staying with Sandy and Charles Bullock when I go to Lewis Gregory, and then I'm also working with this wonderful choir. I mean, in the spirit, the same as what I'm used to in my church, but a, a different sense of unity because everyone there... You know, they, they didn't look like me. There were people that looked like me, and there were people that really didn't. There were people that really couldn't speak English that well, and we were all singing gospel music together. That, at first, for me, was really, my first impression was, this is disturbing. Mm. And then it became very curious, and then I was interested, and then I fell in love with it. Mm. So I just, I had all these people around me, you know, powerful, strong, loving Baha'is around me, and I, just, I began to really ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. about the faith, because it, it it was unsettling my spirit that what they had could be so wrong as opposed to what I knew in my church. And I actually talked to my pastor about it, and he encouraged me to go and find out. Now, he also was a professor of religious studies at Benedict College, so I believe to this day that he knew everything I was getting ready to find out, but he just he encouraged me to go find out. Wow. He's like, if, if your soul is unsettled, Sister Ferguson, go, go, go find out. Go visit. He said, and don't stop at the Baha'is. Go visit, you know, the, the, the Buddhists and the Hindus. And you know, he was like, you know, go visit everything and find out everything you can and, and, and just see what your spirit says. Mm. Um, and I, I appreciate him so much for giving me that direction. I believe he knew. I believe he knew that I needed to be someplace bigger than where my church was. Mm. I remember when I was had finally decided, I think the first book I really read was Any Interest was released the sun which is a book that basically in narrative form tells the history of the bobbies the forerunners to the baha'i faith but the book that really solidified all my answers for me was thief in the night and i would read it alongside my bible mm. and it just made sense it made logical sense it made spiritual sense and the more sense it made the angrier i became because i felt as if every person of religious authority that I come in contact with in my life, I felt that they must have known this information, but they felt that I didn't need to know it. Like, like they were intentionally hiding something from me. In my community in Columbia, um, in the Baha'i community in Columbia, 
of course, you know, because it was growing, it was new, it wasn't anywhere near as organized as the church experience that I was used to three and four days a week. And I came to a point where I said, you know what, this really makes sense. I believe that Baha'u'llah is who he said he is, mm. but I'm not leaving my church. And that's, that's exactly what I said, because I didn't feel that the Baha'i community had anything to offer me by way of a religious experience. It made sense intellectually, but religious, spiritually, I felt that I was where I needed to be because, you know, I, I felt close to God there. Mm-hmm. And I actually physically started becoming ill. And there was a point where, you know, I couldn't really walk well. My legs were hurting all the time. And I was going to different doctors, homeopathic chiropractors, anything I could think of. Everybody was trying to hand me a herb or a drug or something to help me with the pains that I was having in my legs. And it seemed like every time my choir was supposed to travel, I wasn't well enough to go. Mm-hmm. And then there would be times when Eric would say, you know, hey, man, the choir's going to go and do this and such, you know, down you know, by Lewis Gregory or in Hemingway or somewhere, anywhere. Can you go with us? And I'd say, well, you know, if I feel up to it, you know, I haven't been feeling that good. If I feel up to it, I'll go. You know, and I'd get up that morning, and I'd check myself, I'd shake my toes. I would feel fine, and that made me mad. And so I would go, and it's like, how come every time it's time for me to go and do something with the Baha'is, I feel okay? But then when it's time for me to go and do something with my church family, I don't feel well enough to go. And one of the thoughts that I had, I was like, maybe the Baha'is put a root on me. <laughs> you know, they're always happy. I mean, I remember the first time I went to a Baha'i home with a Persians, and I had never been around Persians before. Yeah. And actually, Eric had invited me to come to the party that we were having to have. But my church had an African-American history banquet that night. And so he had invited the whole office. And so we had all said that we would go. And evidently, I was the only one that really meant it. And so I show up after my banquet. I'm like head to toe in African garb because I just came from this African banquet. And Eric is nowhere to be found. These mm-hmm. being Mateen, I think was his name. And so I ring the doorbell, and these people open the door, and they're like, oh, welcome, welcome, come in. Oh, you're so beautiful. What does this mean? They're talking about my clothes. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of usher me in, and immediately I'm, like, checking to make sure where all the exits are because I'm not used to being around white people that are this happy to see me. <laughs> and, you know, and I was, like, really disturbed, and I asked, you know, well, where's Eric? He's like, oh, well, you left. And I'm thinking, and that brother isn't even here. He has set me up. And I was like, mental note to self, don't eat anything, don't drink the punch, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. And make sure you know where the exits are at all times. But, you know, really, there's something about these people that I kept running into, the the warmth and the openness. And and when we would have dialogues and discussions about race, just the the place where the discussions were coming from, I'm used to it being a very angry place. And this was a very loving place, although, you know, there's still some ignorant things that are said. (laughs) It's said in love. And uh, I just was not used to that. It really blew my mind. Mm. And to make a long story short, I finally came to a point where I I think I had asked someone, if I become a Baha'i, can I still go to my church? And they were like, oh, yeah, sure, you can still go to your church. So I would go to church on Sunday, and I would do my part to help usher souls to Christ, and I would listen to the sermons that I had heard so many times before, And then I felt like, you know, when the pastor would end his sermon, there was like one more step that I knew was there. 
but he wasn't taking everybody there. Mm. And then I began feeling like a hypocrite because here I am bringing people halfway and not doing anything to show them what I felt was the rest of the truth. And I got to a point where I couldn't do it anymore. And I remember when I finally decided that it was time for me to make a choice and stop sitting on the fence. And I went to my church at a time when I knew that nobody else would be there. And I took my choir robe, and I went and I just sat in the choir stand for the longest time. I don't know how much time went by. You know, but I was I was upset because I, I was saying goodbye to home like I was leaving home. And when I finished saying my prayers and coming to peace, I hung my choir robe up, and I haven't been back wow. to my church. You know, some of my fellow church members, you know, they're, they're still praying for me today. You know, some yeah. person was still praying for you. Now, Kara, what about your, I hate to say psychosomatic, but maybe your, your illness that you were experiencing? When I left my choir robe at my church and I walked out of that building, I did not have any more trouble with my leg. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not one more bit. And I think it was because my spiritual struggle mm-hmm. was just manifesting itself physically. Mm-hmm. And the only way that God knew to slow me down, and that was my legs. Yeah, interesting. Because I was constantly on the go. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting also that you felt that the pastor was purposely leaving information out rather than just not being aware that there was more to be said. He's a student. He's a professional student. He's a professional teacher. And I just saw so much wisdom and knowledge in him and spirituality. I believe that he knows. I also know that it is extremely difficult for someone in his position to, if he was to make that choice, he is making the conscious decision to leave his life's work, mm-hmm. his livelihood, the livelihood of his family, and start over. And maybe, you know, and of course, I don't know if this to be true. This is just my feeling. But maybe he feels that by at least bringing people all, all the way up to Jesus and getting them solid in Jesus, that he is doing a part to bring them at least to God. And then if he sees that they're searching, encouraging them to go further. Mm-hmm. Maybe he feels that's his part in God's plan. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But that's, I've kind of decided that for him so that I can make peace with the role that he played in bringing me to the Baha'i faith. Right. So you became a Baha'i? I sure did. I can't remember. But, um, <laughs> and uh, and I, I haven't, I have really missed my church. Sure. And I've struggled with missing that and feeling like I need so much more and also with the responsibility of being a person of color in the faith mm-hmm. and our responsibility to bring that same spirit to the Baha'i community because I've never had to create it myself. Mm -hmm. I walked into a system where it already existed Mm -hmm. and frankly was pretty comfortable and lazy about it Mm -hmm. and content to complain for for some time before I finally decided I have work to do. God is asking me to do these things. Look at the people that he put in your life. Look at the journey he took you on. You got to get up and you have to do something. Mm -hmm. And, and that's just all there is to it. So what's the first thing you did? Working with one human family. Eric Dozier, myself, and a young lady named Dilsey Davis, uh, we had been singing with 
different choirs, different Baha'i choirs in different states. The general sentiment was whenever we would go places, people wanted, they wanted what we were sharing with them. And we decided on a whim, why don't we just get all the people that we've ever worked with from all these different places and let's take them on a tour of the South. And we'll have race unity dialogues on the bus. We'll talk about unity. We'll talk about all the, the tenets of the Baha'i faith. And we'll, we'll just we'll get on a bus and we'll just go and we'll do service and we'll, we'll bond and we'll work some racial issues out and we'll sing and we'll have a blast. Let's just do that. And we just did it mm-hmm. on a whim. And that first tour, I think there were 40-some-odd people that came on tour with us. Mm-hmm. And it was just an amazing experience from start to finish. The dialogue, the discussion, the bonding that happened on that tour, and the service that we were pre- able to provide, the music that we took to communities that traditionally didn't have that or experience it, and just to have brought all those different people from all those different cultures together with one unified purpose, it, it was it was a life-changing experience for a lot of the 40 people that were on that bus, and I dare say for all of the 40 people that were on that bus. And we decided before the end of that tour that we needed to formalize that process and that structure and keep doing it over and over again, replicating that process. So it was on that tour that we really decided, we formalized the idea of the One Human Family Workshop Choir. Mm -hmm. And we call it a workshop choir because it's not about the finished product. It's not about the performance. It's about the process that you go through to unify a group to sing praises unto God. And we purposely did not make it a quote-unquote Baha'i choir because one of the purposes, one of the underlying purposes which which we started the choir was to bring people closer to the faith of God. It was how I came into the Baha'i faith was through the music. You know, I dare say that one of the problems that we've had over the years in One Human Family is it's a nonprofit organization. We established it as a 501c3 as a multi-faith organization. Mm-hmm. And, but as people come in to the choir and they have an opportunity to be around Baha'is and they have an opportunity to, to know and love them and begin to trust them and learn about the message of Baha'u'llah, the unifying message of the Baha'i faith, one of the drawbacks of that is they ultimately become Baha'i. <laughs> and so we got to a point where we were like, you, you can't become a Baha'i because our choir is supposed to be multi-faith and we're... It's becoming more and more behind. No, you can't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> you know, but as a behind, it's a great problem to have. Mm. But as an administrator, it was a nightmare. Mm. You know, we're going into churches and synagogues and singing and spreading the unifying message. And, you know, somebody would say, you know, well, how many of you in here are Jewish or Christian, and our numbers were increasingly getting smaller and smaller and smaller, but the high, the high numbers like growing and growing and growing. So, yeah. But we, it's, a, it's a good problem to have. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we look at it as such, and it's a challenge that we continue to undertake. Yeah. But we know, we know that we're doing the right thing at the right time just because of how attractive people are mm-hmm. to the music and to the message. And I, I do believe that if it was not for my experience with the choir, then God knew how to reach me. And it was through the music. And so that's what he sent. He sent me somebody to reach me musically. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> that's good. That's great. It's a great story. Well, what are you doing today? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still heavily devoted to One Human Family. Mm-hmm. And in my work, in my job, my occupation, 
uh, we strive to make the environment one which exemplifies the tenets of the Baha'i faith. And there are several of us that work there, which makes it easy for us. And we know that work is worship. And so my personal testimony in my workplace is such that I am Baha'i, I live Baha'i, I love Baha'i, so that I'm constantly teaching, to constantly be in a state of teaching. I, the organization that I work for is an organization that educates about financial literacy and different issues, and it, it makes it an easy fit just by the nature of our teaching. Um, so I'm very lucky in that respect that I can take my faith to my workplace. So, mm-hmm. so I do that, and, and I try to do that each day. It's hard. I'm not going to lie. It is hard because the world you know, tries to just take that joy from you in a lot of terms. But that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm working at the Community Reinvestment Association. I'm still administrating One Human Family workshops. I've been um, recently traveling and doing music workshops at the different Baha'i schools and in, in different cities around the United States. Um, and just taking that message, that unifying message, the, the good news of gospel mm-hmm. and framing it in, in a network of community building and how we can bring people together through music, that is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And what does the future hold for you? Lord only knows. I think I saw a play one time, and they asked that question. They said, that's a good question. Lord, you answer it. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I'm trying to be open and trying to be a vessel. I'm, I'm at a, a place of transition mm-hmm. from one state to another, actually from married life to single life. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of unknowns for me right now. But I know that my future holds still teaching and singing and bringing the message through music. The exact vehicle that I'll ultimately end up using, I don't know what that is yet. Maybe somebody can tell me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm waiting on an answer. <laughs> well, Kara, thank you so much. Well, thank you. That was totally painless. <laughs> I'm, glad it, I'm glad it was painless. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kara Williams the administrator for the nonprofit organization One Human Family, and a worker at the nonprofit called the Community Reinvestment Association. For the rest of this show, I'll be playing the gospel songs Kara loves so well. These particular songs are written by Eric Dozier. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
take the Lord God mighty in battle. You need to lift your voice and give him praise. Shining land. Make of me a shining land. 
light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.